0: Uh, Dan's comment earlier about um, the upcoming vote in the weeks ahead of uh, John and Jim. I just want to speak to um, the congregation here at Redeemer, members in good standing here that that you would be very thoughtful about that. Um, They're very thoughtful about it. They, They put in a lot of hard work up front to see what the Lord does through the church and calling them to serve in the capacity of a ruling elder here at the church. Just again to outline for you uh, the level of work and sobriety they put into it is a lot. They've done uh, exams on New Testament, Old Testament, uh, systematic theology, uh, the order of the church, and sacraments. And maybe I'm lowballing them, maybe one other. I, I can't quite recall exactly. They have put in a lot of time, a lot of work. And that doesn't qualify them to do it. But it, it does uh, uh, demand your careful, prayerful attention toward them. They've done a lot of work. So if you would also do a lot of work in your prayer for them, and your prayer for this church, that we would have godly leadership at the helm and be able together as a session to, to make wise choices and follow the Lord's leading it would further nourish this congregation, uh, we are asking you to prayerfully do so, given the level of work that's been put forward at this point. To today's uh, sermon, then, as I said, I was uh, last week, but it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, which, since it's two weeks ago... I just took that as a green light to almost re preach the two weeks ago sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Repetition is the mother of learning. So, um, so but, but because I know you've forgotten everything, I have to, I must uh, call to mind that I, I have uh, what was rather unclear in the small groups when we got together that I even said that I had three principles for parenting, or there was one principle for parenting. And in our small group, at least, there was like, I didn't see any principles for parenting. Where's the question coming from? I actually do, and I did. Uh, So I'll try to be more clear. I do think that what we come out of this text, uh, what we receive from this text by by working through the nuts and bolts and the pieces of the passages, is that here in the text of Genesis 4, there are what we can reap out, probably more and perhaps no less, at least three principles of parenting that I want us to consider from Genesis 4. And again, it's not just because there's parents in the room. This is just how we should preach this text, how we should go about the questions and the answers of this text and reap its benefits. So the idea that if you don't have children, you're thinking, why am I here? I, now I should just leave, maybe quietly. You can't, because we can see everyone here. So you can't. You're here now. And, and uh, let's say it's, it's going to equip you to grasp the narratival story of Cain and Abel better. So either which way, it serves all of us. But again, why zero in on the idea of parenting from this text or where is the, the idea coming from? And the reason for this, that we need to consider these three principles of parenting from Genesis 4, is because if we look at the whole of Scripture, so we, we look at from Genesis to Revelation, we just, we just consider the role of parent and child relations described for us throughout the Bible in various narrativeal stories, proverbial wisdom, and on into the epistles, we recognize that there is in the whole Bible there is taught a certain cause and effect relation between a child's ultimate character outcomes and his or her parental upbringing. So, so this is this is again we need to be careful here. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's typically unwise, to say the least, it can be extremely misguided and hurtful. To say to a parent in a situation with their child, well, you know, this situation in the child's life is because of you doing X, is extremely, ex- uh, it's very difficult to do. Very difficult. To look at all the moving parts. And there are so many moving parts that each of us would wish that the other would consider in in assigning something to us. There are so many moving parts. And so many other pieces, nuts and bolts, are constantly moving. That it is extremely unwise for us to say, this is that. It it just, it, it shrinks a person's story so unfairly. And it hurts uh, unnecessarily unwisely. But, given that, that all of us should step back before we assign A and B, we cannot deny that parents set important trajectories in the lives of their children through the choices they themselves make in raising them. We cannot deny that. Again, it's trajectory setting. And so for each of us in here who do have children, think about the awesome responsibility we bear. We are, through our choices, setting trajectories. But again, indeed, I say trajectories because other elements will come in. Other weather patterns in their life, so to speak, will have an effect upon them as well that are within our bounds and outside of our bounds. It is a moving life, multi-layered. But again, here with this little one, under our care, we are setting kind of the till or the angle, or the trajectory wherein we will allow those influences or we won't. But we can't control the outcome. But we affect it to some degree. I briefly offered you for a thought... ...when I say that uh, the reason is because the whole entire scripture... ...or if we take scripture in the main, the entirety of it... ...that it speaks of this cause and effect relationship... ...I just briefly offer two texts that you're familiar with... ...as kind of the grounds for why I'm going to begin building my house this way. And it is Proverbs 22.6. Again, you're familiar with the text... Um, you've heard it, and and if you've ever read a parenting book or anything that's Christianese, you've heard this text in operation. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, it, You've heard that text. It's an imperative force. You need to be doing this. You need to be training a child in a life pattern. But again, Uh, The comment in the second portion of the text, and he will not depart from it, can be both positive or negative. It's speaking to trajectories. And that the the patterns and the habits that you're setting in your home are, are good ones, godly ones, helpful ones, moral ones, wise ones. And, 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 and the trajectory that's set is that when he's old and you look down the road and he's down there, or she's down there, they're not departing from this sense of a godly trajectory I've set in their lives. So, so what can I do? I can't guarantee this, but I am an instrumental means in helping it come to fruition. The other text, so so that's an Old Testament, and and again, there's more, but I'm just picking out two that represent maybe each section. In in the New Testament, then, a familiar one also about the sense of cause and effect relations, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Paul speaking to the covenant families of the church, these covenant little children, members of the church. Godly offspring, he speaks to them in the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 6. And you remember, it's children, obey your parents. Guys, come on, listen to mom and dad. And then he attaches the old covenant promise that is still operative in their little lives. God will bless you, little son or daughter, for listening to mom and dad. Now, again, can we specify what that particular blessing looks like and how it is measured in a child's life? We cannot. But we say, well, since we can't quanti- quantify it or measure it or we can't perform the scientific method upon it, it must not exist. No, Paul said so. There is a particular blessing attached to that little life who obeys his mom and dad. Or he wouldn't have added it. It's unnecessary. Again, there is something, then, when you go through uh, verse 3 and verse 4, it addresses dad, because, again, there's this causal relation. It speaks to a, if we were, if I were to summarize, and I'll summarize, because, again, uh, all of you are with me right now, because you memorized, memorized this from two weeks ago, so I know that I'm a borrowed time, but Ephesians, I'll just remind you, just in case there's a single person here who forgot. If I could summarize verses 1 through 4 simply this, Paul speaks to the mutually rewarding relations. Think about that. Mutually rewarding relations between dad doing the right things and son or daughter receiving and doing the right things, both of them before the Lord. It's good for dad to do the right thing. To to be a man who doesn't provoke and, and pick I was looking earlier, I was um, on the treadmill, it's awful, and I was on it, and I was at the gym, and it's just, you know, you have no sense of progress, you're here, you're just staring at the wall, and then there's like these TVs, and everything's on such fast, uh, closed captioning, it almost drives you mad, because you can't read it that fast, and once you catch up, it stops. And you know they're talking, and then you're getting mad, you're like, and then it just blurps a bunch, and it, it, it just, it's, it's almost mind-blowing. But Dr. Phil was on, he's on usually the time that I'm there, and uh, it, it was talking about this cause-and-effect relation, it just happened to be this discussion on the TV, as far as I could make out in the closed captioning anyway. Um, <laughs> This, it was about eating disorders, and this, this young woman uh, had this terrible set uh, habit and life that is just being destroyed by this eating disorder. And you know what she cited as uh, where she can remember a kind of pinpoint where she viewed food differently from consumption to like vice, or, where it moved from like good to bad for her was when her dad made a comment to her calling her chubby and saying that she ought to lose some weight. And it was something like 12. And now here she's like made it to like late teens. And she, you know, has like a skeletal look. And um, at the house they tear all of the nutrition labels off the foods just so she can't read them. So that maybe she'll eat some of it. And that's what the whole show is. The point being, when dad does the wrong thing, there's an effect. When dad does the right, conversely the right thing, there's an effect. There, there, there is this way in which Scripture describes our relations to our children that he has provided to us, that there is a cause and effect relation going on between the way that you shepherd them and the way that they respond to you. And then he warns dad to be very careful in the way that he shepherds. He, he better not provoke them to anger. Unnecessarily being unjust or inequitable in your dealings with them. Being responsive unjustly, because it's more about retribution at that point than wise correction. Because if dad's doing the right thing and child's doing the right thing, there is a mutual reward for them both. With one another, the relationship is rich. And, and, and both of them spiritually before the Lord. Their lives are prolonged in peace. So if we consider these texts in light of Cain and Abel and the outcome, that we know, and, and I promise we will get to the actual events that transpire between Cain and Abel uh, next week. That day in the field, when one brother rose up against another, we need to be cautious in considering the Cain and Abel outcomes and saying, well, it's Adam's fault, he was a bad dad, or it's Eve's fault, you know, she was a bad mom. We need to be very cautious in doing so. But, again, we must be diligent in learning how our first parents, indeed, share responsibility for the tragedy of that day. What's the point to throw Adam and Eve under the bus? Absolutely not. Uh, for by all accounts, we recognize godly, godly folks um, repented after after the disastrous situation in their own lives, uh, growing in the Lord. I'm going to show you evidence, indeed, of their godliness. And I think it speaks to just the tremendous need that we need to be. All of us as parents need to be very careful in the raising of our children. Um, we need to consider as we look at this situation uh, to seek wisdom. In shepherding our own children well, I'm sure indeed that's what the text is here for, for us to consider wisely and to lay it up on our own hearts that we be wise in the shepherding of our children. So, from three principles of parenting the te- uh, from the text, I've already given you the first. And the first, last week, i just just reiterate the actual point. When I'm saying there's three principles or three points to parental responsibility, um, I, I'm giving you the first one is simply this, the parental responsibility to nurture your children. I mentioned that two weeks ago. There is a parental responsibility f- for you, mom and dad, to nourish your children. Now, if we were to think nourish and then we were to kind of more break it down in the text, by what means are we talking about nourishment here by the text? Because we could talk about nourishment and, and nourish and nurture versus nature. We could, we could just go way out into the weeds. But if we look at this text, what are we talking about? What kind of nurture is present here in the family unit right here between uh, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel? And, and, and I highlight for you the nurturing their children for character formation through hard work. They're nurturing their children for character formation through hard work. And that's important because I I, I don't even think, well, obviously, they they didn't do a good job because look at the character that was formed, a la Cain. No, you have to be careful. Again, um, I'll I'll come back to that at the very conclusion. But I want to put positively forward here that, indeed, they did nurture their children for character formation. How? Through hard work. I note for you, again, Cain was a worker of the ground. It's explicit in the text, and you see it there. Let's see in verse 1 and following. Now, Adam uh, knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel, here's the, the, the character formation through hard work. I'm noting for you that it's clear that we learn Abel is a keeper of sheep or domestic livestock. He's a worker. And Cain is a worker. And and the particular type of work that he does is he works the ground. Again, as Calvin comments, and I'm going to summarize point one and now we're into point two. But this is what Calvin provides for us. I think is extremely helpful in the picture that's being painted here regarding Cain and Abel. And that is this quote. It would have been hard for Cain. Think about this for just a moment. It would have been hard for Cain and Abel to get used to working hard and leading a painful life. Right? And think about your kids. Think about my kids. Oh, the, the little ones. It's hard for them. It's hard for them to get used to leading a hard life, to developing skills, to putting their stuff away. It's hard on them when you think, no, 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 we got to do this. We, 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 we need to, to mature. We need to grow. It's not like, yeah! We, you know, we have these episodes at our house. Meltdowns over, like, dude, everything in the room. A couple of weeks ago, not to get too personal here, but uh, uh, none of my kids are in here. And they don't listen to sermons later. (laughs) Trust me. Um, When we have talks at the house, they call them speeches. Um, (laughs) uh, I I believe your speech, Dad. Okay, great. Um, Episodes where everything, recently, everything just, and the floor, and you've probably had this as well. Everything that was on the floor got put in a basket, and and it got taken all away. Everything. If it's laying on the floor, it's mine. (laughs) Gone. I don't give you things so that you can destroy my house with them. They're all out of here. I've asked you multiple, multiple, multiple times to please do this, to please do that, to please do this. The idea of putting something away doesn't mean go upstairs in your room, open the door, and throw it, and then come back down. That's not putting it away. Okay, so it's all mine now. I'm not giving it back. It's gone. The the idea, like, it's hard on them to lead a well-ordered life. You, You can't just think, like, well, they'll figure it out at some point. No, they won't. I don't think so. At least mine won't. They would just be pleased to live a well, unordered life forever. It won't just catch up with them. I have to. Adri has to help it catch up to them now. Like, you're going to be the worst roommate anyone's ever had in the world. If you can't right now with your own roommate, work it out. So, Calvin comments the same thing with Cain and Abel. It's not a given in the text, it's something we need to learn. It would have been hard for Cain and Abel to get used to working hard and leading a painful life. Well, well, then what happened for Cain and Abel if they had not been prepared for it by their father and mother? So what we have here, as much as in Cain, as in Abel, two young men from the same family, what do we have? We have, Calvin says, a well-ordered life. They were taught mom and dad, domestic livestock responsibilities, that's you, Abel. I, it's got to be done. Cain, somebody's, you know, we got to work the ground here. Ground doesn't work itself. you got to get out here. I'll summarize this point of parental responsibility to nurture your children for character formation through hard work. And it is simply this. And we say it in our home. I share it with you because it doesn't belong to us. But it summarizes this thought brilliantly. And that is simply this, sow a habit, reap a character. That, that's, that's true, it's always been true, it's true in your life now as an adult. Be careful. Because think about the things you just do. Think about them wisely. Because again, to sow a habit, I just habitually kind of do this. Or this thing's come into my life and I slowly am giving myself to it. Okay, consider it then. Step back and think. I'm creating habits, to sow a habit is to reap a character. Think about your little ones. What are you trying to do? Character formation with them. I can't control the outcome, but I can set the trajectory. Where am I aiming for them? Are you aiming at all, or are you out to lunch? Are you aiming? Are, is where you want them to land, is that even godly? Is that what, do you want godly outcomes? Or do you want, you know, survival outcomes? Them to be the best at X, Y, or Z? What, what are your, where are you pointed? Where do you want them to land? And then think, how do I get them from here to there? And I'm suggesting between here and here, Habits because the habits that are sown will then begin to reap out the fruit of a character that will establish their own habits. The second of our three principles then for parenting, this is the part where we just started something new, and I know you all know that. This is the second uh, Parental responsibility, or the second of three principles for parenting driven on from Genesis 4, and that is number two, the parental responsibility to fight favoritism. The parental responsibility to fight favoritism. Um, uh, Again, I'll read the text just to familiarize ourselves with it, but you probably assume where I'm going. Considered the naming of Cain. But then there's two more particulars I want you to consider. Read the text with me of verses 1 through 4. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now again, I gave you the principle, the responsibility, mom and dad. Your responsibility, mom and dad, is to fight favoritism. Now don't don't think in your mind, I don't have any. It'll emerge in certain ways. One personality is more given to your type. Or another personality is more given towards another type. This one tends to uh, like scratch at my itches this way. This one tends to scratch it this way. The way that I kind of seem to make sense to this one, and the way that that one seems to respond toward me, when you have maybe more than one. If you have one, then just don't spoil them. We'll count that for favoritism. But but, but if, there, if there's more moving parts in the house, be careful on favoritism. It's not like, well, okay, I don't have it. No, I'm telling you, fight favoritism. Think carefully of how you interact with them. They love to read between the lines. So here, look at the way that it, it begins with Cain. And, and, and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. How exciting. We have looked at that a month or so ago. How exciting. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Then it moves on from like, oh yeah, and Abel's here too. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first of his flock and of their fat portions. Again, as we saw a little portion earlier, a few weeks earlier, that is, the the naming of Cain, where I have gotten or I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord, undoubtedly reflects his being the favorite. What does it mean that, again, one will get the favorite? Because the contrast is set up for you in the text. Do you notice? Look at this. Cain! And they're like, and we had Abel too. You think Abel's deaf to that? What does it mean to to have this sense of favoritism? It means for Cain, he most likely got preferential treatment. And I'll prove it next in the text. But think about it with me for a moment that he got preferential treatment, preferential care, preferential praise. More affection, more privilege, less discipline. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life, and maybe this touches on your own spirit. And and you, you sense the baggage that it brings, or the heartache that it brought, to consider genuinely, not teasingly, where you tease a brother. My brother always teases me that I'm the favorite. I'm not, trust me. But it's a joke, right? But what about its genuine nature? That sense of how maybe you felt with someone in your own family and and the the hurt that that brings. Parents have a responsibility to fight favoritism. Now, I want to infer from this passage with you, you that we look at this together and how we can prove out a little bit more of this idea of favoritism. There is no doubt that in the naming of Cain as deliverer, with all their hopes set upon him to take them back to paradise, that he indeed is the favorite. But I want to show you in two ways. First, consider it this way. He worked with dad in the cultivation of the soil. Look back at chapter 2, verse 15. I want to show you something again. Where, where, what does it mean that he worked with dad in the cultivation of the soil? Well, because between working in the soil and working as a domestic shepherd... Uh, working in the soil, which would you say, biblically informed, how would we say um, which one is a better occupation? Working in the ground with dad or working over here with the domestic livestock alone? Which one is the better? Well, everyone's, well of course it would be better to be with dad. Um, and, and not only that, but even a better occupation. Why? Because it's more in sync with the original commandment given man. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. It's just a better occupation. The Lord, um, God took the man and he put him in the garden, in, in this beautiful place of Eden, this, the, the, not, not just Eden itself, but in the Garden of Eden. And, and what was he going to do in the garden and the keeping of the ground? He, he was going to work it. Th- this is given to man naturally to do. That the best occupation given man prior to the fall was that he would work in the garden and that he would keep the land. One author comments this, for there is no status in the world which can be more quickly approved by God than that of working the earth. That status is more in conformity with nature, right? Pre-fall, nature, more in conformity with the initial commandment. This is where you'll find fulfillment. This working and this keeping of the land and working it, and it's yielding to you its fruits. You you have a very symbiotic relationship with the earth. It it, it yields to you, and you till it and care for it. So, that status, this author says, is more in conformity with nature as people occupy themselves with cultivating the ground in order to be nourished by it. It's the better occupation. There's Cain! Oh! You come on, you come work with Dad. Hey, Abel, just make sure you're over there keeping the sheep. Yeah, I'm going to go work with Dad. We've had those experiences in our own house. Uh, hey, you can't. You're too young. You can't come. You can't come. Just me and Dad. Y- you have those experiences, too. Well, you can work with Mom. Mom, I, for whatever reason, sorry, either. <laughs> I want to work with Dad. Right? It, it, something's kind of just... The way that the children see mom, respond to mom, discern mom's role. I always thought of that when we were young, when our children were really young. I think the first time that I like uh, bonded with my children when they were toddlers and could say my name. Um, the sense of the sense of bonding where you're like, oh, that, that little kid knows me. But but a mom is different. Like the the, the baby knows the mom from like minute go. And it's always proven out when they're really little because when they get hurt, now they're really upset and there's only one person who can really comfort the situation. It's always the mom. But then when there's that sense of development and growth and independence, like, well, i want to be with dad. So they just have this way about it. And you think the way that now it is with Cain and Abel is no different. These, these are real, actual human relations. And uh, how would it hurt you, or how would it hurt a little one, to have Dad square off of one and take off? And they work together all the time, and and you're over here alone. That sense of favoritism shown. The other aspect of favoritism in the text is simply in the name Abel itself. Now, I don't, I don't want to get carried off into too much inference here, but I will give you the data on it, and you can weigh it out in your own mind. The the, the definition of the name Abel is the same term that we use in Ecclesiastes. Uh, which, which is simply, uh, it stands for vanity, or, or beyond vanity, we would simply say breathless, like a vapor. Now, again, I don't think that any mother, and I think we would go too far beyond the text if we said, so see, she's throwing Abel under the bus. I, I think that would just be r- r- radically unnatural for a mom to have a baby of whatever sort, and then just be like, well, let's call him wasteless, or wasteful, or breathless, or a vapor. You know, we just had to have him. Now, Cain, I think that would just be way over the top. But I do think things are set in motion where they, they did name him Abel. Uh, and there's a contrast brewing here that ends up in a field somewhere where one of the brothers kills the other one. And it didn't start that day when he got mad. It was cultivated. Um... And so when we look at Abel and Cain, we just kind of put them together in the family context. I think it's wise to just simply see that there is a lot of hope attached to Cain. He's the favorite. I mean, remember, you have to understand the birth of Cain in the context of Genesis 3. They've been given a promise of deliverance. They have been told that one will be born who will put things right. And then the next thing we have in the text is Adam and Eve have Cain. She exclaims, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we also had Abel, his brother. And his name is Abel. Meaning there's less hope attached to Abel than there is to Cain. Parents have to fight favoritism. Luther concludes this way regarding the the, the the naming ceremony or the idea of naming Cain so wonderfully with exclamation, and Abel is just a footnote in the text, and oh yeah, he's got a brother. Luther comments this. I think he's spot on. It says, quote, thus, he to whom no hope attached. And I think we need to be careful. It's not that, again, Abel has no hope. No one has a child, typically has a child. It would be very unnatural to have a child and, and, and not and misname purposely or hurtfully name a child at birth. That would just be odd or unnatural, particularly here at the very beginning of origins. So Luther says to whom no hope attached, but then he qualifies it in an important way, and I think this is right. Thus, he to whom no hope attached or only a futile. favoritism is called Abel but he from whom everything is hoped is called king I simply will conclude point two with these words when a parent who chooses to esteem or honor please consider it parents when a parent who chooses to esteem or honor one child over the other sets in motion a long-term train wreck. The corrosive effects of jealousy and bitterness, which accompany favoritism, ensure... Please hear. The corrosive effects of jealousy and bitterness, which accompany favoritism, ensure that neither the child who is favored nor the child who is disfavored benefit in the long run. No one wins. I was speaking with my kids earlier about this text um, last Sunday for our time of of worship. um, We talked through the text, and and it was was interesting that they keyed in on the same thing probably you're thinking, and we would very naturally think, then, then why isn't it Abel who kills Cain? Because he ought to be the one who indeed is hurt and embittered against his brother because he knows he's more fancied in his family than he. But you see, there's a twist. Don't we speak of children being spoiled? The spoil is what's destroying even Cain in his response. It's not just Abel. It's not the child who isn't favored who loses out alone. It's even the child who is favored who loses out in the long run. Mom and dad are doing no favors. Oh, pun intended, by favoring one of the children. No favors at all. The third and final principle of parenting for our time with the Cain and Abel narrative is number three, the parental responsibility to catechize your children. Um, Number three is the parental responsibility to catechize your children. And um, what I mean by using the term catechize, I'm, I'm using it more broadly than taking my first catechism or, or taking the tool or the means of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and doing your catechesis with your children and trying to help them grow in understanding the word. I'm moving beyond that. I don't really think like my total parental responsibility according to Genesis 4 is that I catechize and I pull out the book and I catechize my children. I certainly wouldn't be against that. It's very helpful. Uh, It's a role of mom and dad. It's a role of the church together to catechize. But what I'm using here in the term catechize, I mean more broadly the idea of teaching, transmitting, and shaping the faith in the lives of your children. Again, it's more broadly than question, answer, question, answer. What I'm saying is it is our responsibility, your responsibility, my responsibility as moms and dads that we teach, transmit what we ourselves possess, so we're positively teaching them, we're transmitting to them what we ourselves possess, and then we're shaping the faith in the lives of our children. That is my responsibility. It is your responsibility. Thus, what's implied is you cannot transmit something you yourselves do not possess or cherish. You cannot. How many parents uh, have played that role very corrosively in their child's life? the role of hypocrisy. The, the, my, the people at the church think my dad and mom are this, and they're that. And I live in between the lives. I live them both. I'm supposed to be like this at church, but then we're like this at home. And then when my parents are being talked to or in conversation at the church, I sit here and I grow embittered for the way that they're respected and honored because I know the corrosive effect of what I live with at home. That will destroy the faith in your children. It will not nourish it. It will not root it. It will not set the right trajectory where their habits will reap their character. It will be bad habits. That they learn to be something they're not. To gain favor with others in public. They will be manipulators. It is our responsibility to teach, positively instruct, and transmit and then shape the faith in the lives of our children. How do we get there from Genesis 4? And I'm concluding our time together. So not much longer. I'm concluding. But uh, Genesis 4, 3 through 5. Look at the text. And it will stand out to you. So we have them working. Uh, we have some sort of favoritism very clearly taught in the text. And then look at verse 3 as it moves forward. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Now, again, next week we'll look at the offering and the outcome and how it all went down. But the point here is simply, did we stop to recognize Cain brought the Lord an offering? And then look at Abel. He also does, verse 4, so the two young men are together. And Abel also brought up the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Again, one author comments, Adam and Eve raised their children to know that every good thing was theirs through God as they pay homage to him for it bringing it and confessing that everything was his and that praise was due his name and to be rightly given to him they knew this is what we're to do but again where did they learn that? You just read it. They brought sacrifice. I know the Cain and Abel story. They brought sacrifices. And then Cain a got mad and he killed Gable. And then the story keeps moving. You're like, where did they learn to bring the sacrifice that gave the context? Where did they learn that? Mom and dad. There, there, there was a catechizing. There, there, there was a teaching. This is what you must do. Abel, this is what you must do before the Lord. For our whole lives as a family is lived before the face of the Lord. It's not just Dad who does it. It's not just Dad who comes on Lord's Day and stands for the singing and and, and listens to the preaching. And then he tries to take it home and transmit it to the children. It's not just Dad. It's you guys, too. you got to listen in class. you got to grow in catechesis. Learn. Why are we going to church? Dad seems to be happy to go to church. Right. Yes. Well, then, it must be a place I need to be. It must be a place I want to go. I'm learning this from Dad and Mom. They're transmitting it to me. I'm learning it, and I'm I'm effectively sowing habits every Lord's day, every Lord's day, every Lord's day, every Lord's day. Day, I'm reaping a character that my faith will withstand. I'm going to reap a godly character because of the means of grace. How did you learn that? From my mom and my dad. I'll conclude with this um, comment then. To conclude our thoughts on three principles of, of raising our children to the glory of the Lord taught in Genesis 4. That is demonstrated in Cain and Abel event. And this is what I want you to consider as we move forward next week. As demonstrated in the Cain and Abel event. From the flesh, nothing but the flesh can be born. Again, I'm not talking about, you, you can't say that the final outcome and the final landing zone is a direct effect that I had on my children. You still have to recognize, even in covenant families, that our children belong to the Lord and they belong to this church. But of the flesh, nothing but the flesh can be born. Sin and death cannot be overcome by flesh and blood. Again, John 3, this is, I said, our final comments. Our Lord says in John 3, and we need to keep this in mind with our little ones. Do we need to strategize? Yes. Do we need to catechize? Yes. Do we need to take them for worship? Yes. Do we need to correct them? Yes. Do we need to form their character? Yes. Do we need to set in motion good habits that will reap godly character? Yes. 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 Yes and oh yeah. Yes. But... We must at all times remind ourselves through the grace that we seek prayerfully that God work in areas that we simply cannot touch. And that is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the story of Cain. So, finally, this thought, as we raise our children, and the story and the outcome of Cain and Abel, it should drive us to, number one, labor intensively for the lives of our children. Don't be lazy. And I sang that, like Adam, Thomas, don't be lazy. I need to see what's at stake. Get off the couch and be involved labor intensively. Secondly, it ought to inform our strategies. In other words, we ought to have strategies to get our children from here to there. Do you know yours? Do you as a couple speak about how you want this outcome for your children? And, and, and because you want that outcome, you're then saying, well, we only get there by certain strategies and certain pathways, and I'm implementing those strategies because I'm laboring intensively for their lives. And finally, as I said, what we see in the outcome with Cain and Abel, though Adam and Eve indeed taught for character formation, yeah, there was some favoritism in there that uh, undid uh, certain aspects of lives. They, 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 They taught them the faith. Finally, then what can we do? After all of our intense laboring and strategizing, we must pray for our children. that God would work in their hearts through the means of mom and dad and through the means of the church and its ministries, that the Spirit would regenerate them if they're not regenerate yet. We raise them to know the Lord who's called them. And we pray for our children. That they'd be responsive to our discipline and desire to grow in our family, in our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...